Today we begin a new series and I'm entitling it Our Firm Foundation. Nine weeks, for the next nine weeks, we're going to talk about things like the Bible and prayer and love and stewardship and the Holy Spirit and this morning about knowing God. Would you pray with me? And would you pray for me? Father, again, just the word incredible comes to my mind. I so love you and thank you for this incredible church that you've allowed me to lead and pastor for my wife and all that as senior ministers here you've privileged us to stand before, to father, to mother, to parent, to bring the word of God. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to anoint my lips. Make my tongue as the pen of the ready writer. Give ears to hear to all who are listening and watching, and even those who will watch through the means technologically later in the weeks to come. Help us with this series. Holy Spirit, you are the teacher. And unless you reveal, unless you uncover, it may just be another set of theological lessons. Don't let it be that, Holy Spirit. Bring it to life. Let the Bible come alive. Let, let our relationship with you, Father, come alive in ways that we've never known before. Let us experience you, God, in these subjects. And I ask for this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, and you may be seated. You know, when I was a young boy, I was 10 years of age. I was standing in a Baptist church attending church service and at the end and close of the message that the minister was giving they had an altar call and I went forward and I gave my heart to Jesus as we refer to it. Being only 10 I had no foundation and being only 10 there wasn't a program in that church at that time for young people like me to help disciple me, to help me grow. So it just sort of fell by the wayside and it was between the ages of 11 and 15 that I really got involved in a lot of things that you would never imagine somebody that young would be involved in. I'm not going to rehearse all of it, but suffice to say, it, it, it even included drugs and shooting up in my arm. The ages of 13, 14, and 15. And then I had an experience when I was 15 at another Baptist church during a revival meeting where I went forward again in response to the pull and the tug of the Holy Spirit, but this time, I really made a, a strong commitment and this time I immediately got involved with other young people my age in the church and became part of the singing group, a singing group that traveled and 
sang and gave testimonies and saw people come to Christ and it was completely different this time. Well, then I wound up attending another church where I met my wife. We attended Bible school together there and I, we got involved in the church, got involved in the nursery programs and the children's programs. We left that church in time, met a gentleman at a, one of the great churches, one of the anchor churches here in Colorado, and uh, got very involved in ministry, met this gentleman and his wife, and he was going to be starting a church. And we left there and went with him and started that church and helped him bring it to life. He sits on our board today, to this day. Then there was a time for about eight or nine years where we were out of ministry. I'm a product of restoration. During those nine years, Nina and I lived in Highlands Ranch. We both had careers in IT. She was a technical recruiter, recruiting people like me and placing them on their jobs, doing information technology stuff, all kinds of computer stuff. And during those years of being out of ministry, we had pastored our first church for over 13 years. I failed to mention that during, after meeting this tremendous man and at Happy Church and pastoring with him for three years, he sent us out. We started our own church and pastored that for 13 years. Some of you sitting here were in that first church not far from here, off 120th in Washington. Then there was that eight to nine year period of time where we were out of ministry. So after pastoring our first church and being this other man's associate for three years. So about 16, 17 years of full-time ministry. And then I found myself in trouble. And for those eight years, nine years, we attended a church that I never would have attended prior to this. And the reason is, is because it wasn't like us. It wasn't spirit-filled, you know. They didn't move in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know. Uh, the preaching and the singing was much different than all the faith and charismatic and Pentecostal and all of that that we had grown up with. That's the kind of church we pastored. Very charismatic, very Pentecostal. And here we are in a Presbyterian church, 8,000 people worshiping God. And during that eight years, we were looking. We were trying to find a church where it, it really fit. Actually, it wasn't all eight years, but the first year of that, two years before we settled down in that church, we were really looking. And I just remember that whether Nino was, was willing to go that morning or not, I, I would go alone to be in that church service. All during my years of growing up as a teenager, and then in my early 20s and into my 30s, and even after I got into trouble and had pastored for 16, 17 years, during this eight-year period where we were in a Presbyterian church and just so out of our element, we found a different God. 
we, we became exposed to a creator that we didn't really know before and to a part of the body of Christ that we had never known. And I can say that my hunger for God never waned. There was a period during the height of us being separated and in trouble where I questioned the very existence of God and whether or not I could continue as a Christian leader. But you know what I found now? That there's a sin of uncertainty, or excuse me, a sin of certainty that plagued my life at that time. I was so certain about everything, so certain about prayer, so certain about faith, so certain about what I believed about the Bible. And one author calls it the sin of certainty. I was certain about a lot of things, but I didn't have my trust properly in God. Fast forward now some 20 years after that, We've started another church. Here we are together in this church. We've seen God move in great, incredible ways. And I'm sharing all this personal testimony to tell you that over the last 35 years of Christian being a, actually, actually I became a Christian 45 years ago, 40, 48 years ago, isn't that, isn't that, I know I don't even look that old, do I? It's amazing. God is good, isn't he? <laughs> 48 years ago, 40, 48, 49 years ago. Isn't that amazing? And the ups and downs and going through near divorce, filing for divorce. In between one church and, and now this church, being a product of restoration in so many ways and so forth. I can tell you, I am more passionate today about God, His Holy Spirit, the Bible, about His love, and creation, and everything God is than I have ever been. And it's due to a firm foundation and that's what I want to spend these nine weeks talking to you about, is how you can build a firm foundation so that no matter what happens in your life, even if you fall into a place of questioning the very existence of God or whether or not your ministry has any more worth or value, because there was certainly a time where I knew I'd never be back in ministry again. And here we are. And again, more in love with Jesus than I've ever been, more in love with the scripture and the Bible than I've ever been. And I'll tell you what, I am less certain about a number of things than I have ever been. And I'm just fine with it. The Bible calls it the mystery of God. The mystery. See, I didn't think anything about God should be a mystery. I didn't think anything about the Bible should be a mystery. 
We need to know it. We need to understand it. We need to proclaim it. We need to believe it. We need to pray it. We need to expect and receive our miracle. And if we're not receiving our miracle, well, then you don't have enough faith. Or you need to be taught the Bible more correctly or all this stuff. And so I'm laying a foundation for a foundation is what I'm doing here this morning. Now, you know, those of you that attend here regularly, that I'm fond, as a course of my study, as part of my study process, fond of looking up various things and reading. I'm a voracious reader when it comes to preparing. And in preparing to talk to you about knowing God, it's such a heady subject, such a, you know, knowing God as a foundation I ran across this and I thought to myself in that moment, oh my goodness, this is religion 101. This is Western evangelicalism 101. Listen to this. Because this is what is foundationally taught in a great majority of churches, especially here in the West. Quote, God will never draw near to those who do not draw near to him. And the way we draw near is through righteousness. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Certainly, God will never draw near in intimacy with the unrighteous. But those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and have received his righteousness at the cross have the hope of intimacy with God. In fact, it is only those who have been saved by grace through faith who have that hope because Christ is the hope through which we draw near to God. And I thought, that's exactly where I used to live that brought me such cracks in my foundation such turmoil and questioning in my life because I saw God as separate, distant, that my relationship with him was based on behavior, that I was unworthy, that he was angry if I misstepped. I did not know 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 in my life. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. I wasn't living through him. I was trying to live for him through a system of behavior modification and trying to be righteous because I knew I believed what I just read to you. That unless I was righteous, unless I lived right, I couldn't be close to God. Knowing God. Do you know God? Do you think it's possible to know God? Have you ever felt close to God? Have you ever felt close to God and then felt like he picked up and left? Have you ever done like one of those really grievous sins, you know? By the way, what's grievous on your list of sins, sin, and what's grievous on my list of sins are two different things. 
<laughs> I mean, there's the big ones like murdering somebody. We pretty much agree, you know, that you're going to, mm, that's going to create some problems between not you and God, but you and the public and you and, and the person you, family of the person you murdered and, and things like that. It never changes God's love for you, but... But I'm not talking about those things. I'm, I'm talking about the day-to-day -day things that you and I wrestle with that cause us to believe that if we don't get that right, God holds himself at a distance. Have you ever tried to know somebody who if they know or catch you doing something that displeases them, they distance themselves? Isn't it hard to be close to somebody who constantly distances themselves if they don't like what you're doing? And that's exactly what Christianity meant to me. A system of laws and rules and trying to get my life right so that I could be close and acceptable. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about how the Lord self-identifies. What do I mean? Well, if we're going to build or start the, with the foundation of knowing God, we need to know who God is, don't you think? Have you ever just asked, who is God? We say we know him, we say we love him, we sang songs this morning about his presence and his goodness, we prayed believing that God was here and God was answering and God was touching and moving, didn't we? This morning, didn't we? But have we ever asked, who are you? Have you ever asked, who are you? Who are you, God? I mean, there's the God of the Jews, there's the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses, there's the God, there's Buddha, there's God of this group and that group, and I mean, who are you, God? Seems to me if we're going to have a firm foundation, we need to know God. And you know what? He tells us who he is. The first way that God self-identifies is he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's that mean? Well, God aligns himself with specific mortals, with individual names who live in identifiable places on the map. Isn't that incredible? The creator of the universe picked out individuals living on this planet with names and chose to identify himself with those people. What other God of any other religion do you know of that does that? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and proud of it. I've written it down for all time. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it, it's so irreligious, this election that he did has nothing to do with spiritual attainments by the people chosen. He chose them before they did anything great for him. He didn't come down, look through the 
the muddle and the mess of humanity and say, okay, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you're living just like I want you to live. You're impressive. You will do my name great. I'm going to pick you out of all of humanity. Abraham was a heathen when God called him. He was a pagan heathen serving other gods when God called him. That's amazing that God would self-identify with irreligious people. I mean, they weren't irreligious as in they had no religion. Many of them had a lot of different religion going on in their lives, but it wasn't with the one true God, the God of Israel. Next... He reveals himself in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Imagine a God who says, I love humanity so much that I am going to die for them. One author calls it, the judge judged himself. You say, oh no, No, that wasn't God, that was Jesus. Excuse me? See, because the third way in which God self-identifies is through something that we call the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God in three persons, fully human, fully God, this unique feature of Christian proclamation is the shocking claim that God acting, fully acting, not only in Jesus, but he himself, God, the Father, was acting and was crucified and then was resurrected. And why? Because he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Then we're told that we are created in his, quote it, image and likeness. You and I are created in his image and his like. Do you realize that in the very moment, in the same breath in which he is saying that we are created in his image and likeness, that he is self-identifying himself with you? Now, God is not a human, and you are not divine. But I love the way Francois puts this in the mirror translation. In him, the image and likeness of God is made visible in human life in order that everyone may recognize their true origin in him. He is the firstborn of every creature. What darkness veiled from us, he unveiled. In him we clearly see the mere reflection of our original life. The son of his love gives accurate evidence of his image in human form. God can never again be invisible. But I was taught that God is separate. It starts with God being separate. And I need to recognize that there's this great chasm between me and God because I am not worthy and God is angry. But Jesus steps in. In the, in the way of that angry God hangs on a cross and pays the penalty for my sin so that God and I can be reconciled. Oh, but don't misstep. 
Don't live the wrong way. Don't sin, because if you do, then God can't look upon sin. He's holy, he's just, and he will turn his back on that. He'll be distant until you get that right. Religion 101. Then Jesus comes along, and he identifies the Father so that we will know who God is. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, he, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Would you read that out loud with me? I and the Father are one. Here's something else he says in John 14. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, I want to ask you something. How do you best see Jesus? I mean, how do you get started building your foundation of what this individual called Jesus is like? This is not a trick question. I'm glad we're going to take this nine weeks together because I'm going to circle around and I'm going to ask some of these questions in nine weeks. And you're all going to stand up and shout, the Gospels! Yes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The account of Jesus on the earth, how he lived, how he loved, how he ate, who he hung out with, who he ran around with, the things that he did, how he prayed. And do you know that one of the biggest criticisms of Jesus while he was on this earth was that he hung out with, one translation says, despicable people. Hey, you need to broaden your scope. You need to broaden you need to broaden the scope of your relationships of who you're letting in and who you hang out with. Some of you are so heavenly minded, you are no earthly good. And I don't say that as a judgment against your spiritual oneness with the Father and who you identify with as your Father and you being his kid. I say that as hopefully a little bit of a, come on, wake up to your religious self your religion that you've been taught. That to be holy, to walk with God, to be pleasing to God, you can't be around people who aren't. Excuse me? Jesus hung around with prostitutes. Jesus went over to sinners' house and had meals with them. Jesus hung around with despicable people. And they weren't saved. They hadn't prayed the prayer and they had never gone to church. How many of you have, don't raise your hand. It's part of preaching, you know. You get in the pulpit and you say things and you. How, how many in the last year, how many of you have been to somebody's house who is an unbeliever, doesn't attend church, and has a lifestyle that's absolutely despicable? Okay. If, if you haven't, you, you are setting yourself up as greater even than Jesus. To Pastor Jeff, this doesn't sound like a foundations class. 
I'm trying to reveal to you who Jesus himself said he was. Here's the next thing he said about himself. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now this was absolutely slanderous to those listening. Because Jesus actually referred to God as his Father. You see, in Jewish tradition, and back when Jesus was on the earth and conducting his life and ministry, the Jewish people did not believe that you could even name the name of God. In fact, they took the vowels out of the name so that all you had was the consonants and they pronounced it Yahweh. They wouldn't even speak the name Jehovah. So they took the vowels out of it, made it Yahweh, so that they wouldn't be blasphemous. And here comes this teacher, hanging out with prostitutes and sinners, doing miracles, signs and wonders, and he says, oh, by the way, when you pray, go directly to God, our Father, and ask him. Dear ones, this is Bible foundation. God loves you. God is not distant from you. He is your father. And he delights to give you good things. John chapter 17. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me. Let me give you real quick. This is a prayer. Jesus is praying. He's talking to the Father. Father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. Sounds like he's a little delusional almost or just not able to articulate his thoughts because he keeps almost being repetitive about this in him, in him. We're part of him. He's in us. We're in you, Father. And what he's trying to say is that there's no distance. The very foundation of who God is isn't that you sought him, that you chased him, that you wanted him. It's that he came after you. He sought you. He pursued you. You didn't invite Jesus into your heart. Okay, careful. No emails. No text messages. <laughs> you didn't invite Jesus into your heart. He invited you into his And what you did is the same thing I did. The more I begin to realize how good my heavenly father is and how he loves me and we're not distant from him, the more I wanted to just fall on my knees in absolute surrender and say, here's my life. Here is my life. 
Hasn't that been the goal of religion? <laughs> we need to surrender to Jesus. If you're not living a surrendered life, then God can't accept you. You're not going to be close to Jesus. Excuse me. You will not live a surrendered life as long as you think God is separate and that living a surrendered life is based on your personal holiness or behavior modification. The power to surrender comes from the revelation that God invited you and me into his heart, made us righteous. Through what he did in Christ, he made us righteous in right standing with God and accepts us in the beloved. May I say it this way? God accepts you for who you are, not for who you should be. Uh, yeah. This is knowing God. This is foundational. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but we do now. Would you repeat those words, please? Let's all say it together. Ready? Go ahead. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have... Yes. Jeff, I'm going to skip this and go right here, Ephesians 1. God associated us in Christ before the fall of the world. Jesus is God's mind made up about you. You know why so many people have given up on church today and don't come anymore? Because they think if they come, they will be judged. They will be held up to a standard that they know they don't meet and can't meet and feel bad about. And they're going to feel judged and feel bad and feel condemned and feel like they're unworthy. And then they're likely to hear a sermon that sort of focuses the light on all of that. And you leave church feeling worse than you did when you came. People already know that in their life they're struggling. Church shouldn't be a place to point out that people are struggling with things that are hurting their life. It should be a place where they can be affirmed in the foundation that God accepts you just as you are without anything further because Jesus is God's mind made up about you. He always knew in his love that he would present us face to face before him in blameless Innocence. Fleming Rutledge, author of a tremendous book on the crucifixion, said this, Bible faith is based on claims concerning the present power of Jesus. Not the historical Jesus, but the real living Jesus and his power to change our lives today. Christian faith is not directed toward a human construction about the past 
That would be a form of idolatry. Authentic Christian faith is a response to the living God whom Christians declare is powerfully at work among them through the resurrected Christ. Faith is not a human achievement, but a gift of God. Of course, we're going to get to that when we talk about the incarnation in the Bible. If I were you, I would not miss a single week. Be here, and when you can't physically be in this room, please join us via live stream and get the rest of this great foundation from the Bible.